I don't know how to lead into this except that I have wanted for years to record our conversations. But this time I actually bought, brought the mics and mixing board. And I would like you to just, um, I don't know what to say. I want you to talk about global warming and your concerns about it, uh, some of your thoughts, because I think they're very important for Christians today to understand. This is one of those issues where you're supposed to pick your position on the basis of your uh, politics. Obviously, I believe that the Democrats as a whole, are bloody. I have no sympathy, none whatsoever for Democrats. I have sympathy for a very few of their policies, but none for them. But that doesn't mean that I have a lot of sympathies for Republicans. Global warming or <laughs> extreme weather, climate change, whatever they're calling it today, is one of these areas where if you want to be uh, acceptable to the chattering classes, to the elite, to the educated. You have to salute climate change. You absolutely have to. And if you're voted for President Trump, as I did uh, twice, um, you're supposed to <laughs> you're supposed to absolutely completely and utterly reject it. And I I I don't want to do either, although I am on the side of rejecting it, no question about that. But I have not heard from American Christians the kinds of concerns you have. And I think they're a function, partly, of your uh, view as an economist. But I think they're also partly a part of you living in Europe and specifically in Germany. Now, before you start on global warming, I want you to do one other thing, and that is, would you give them a history of your work in the administration of the University of Bonn? I was uh, vice rector of the University of Bonn for a number of years, and I was um, especially responsible for the university's research policy, which means uh, I had to oversee the writing and implementation of large grants um, that involved large numbers of uh, researchers at the university. One of the benefits of a position like that is that you get to see the whole university in, in all its different uh, parts. Uh, the humanities, uh, we have two departments of theology, Catholic and Protestant, uh, we have a large um, department of natural sciences with all the various sciences um, in them, and then law and economics. Um, and so it, it it's fascinating if you're in that kind of position because you get to know people that you would never professionally know otherwise. And... Um, and because they are involved in these large research grants, you get to meet the really smart people mm -hmm. in the university, uh, those who are internationally known scientists and uh, uh, researchers. Starting out as an economist, I, I think I learned a lot about the nature of science and the nature of research in general. Um, more than 
I would have if I hadn't been invited to take that position. Mm. And so that that my term was six years, and soon after it ended, I was asked to be first vice dean and then dean of uh, law and economics mm -hmm. at Bonn. And again, to reiterate what you said, your responsibility, there was only one vice rector, it's not like American universities where you have 20 vice rectors, right. vice yeah. presidents, but mm -hmm. there was only one. And they asked you to become president also. Yes, but I declined. Yes. Now, I bring that up because you are an expert when it comes to, and you're not going to like me using the word expert, but you really are quite knowledgeable about the methods by which research money is raised, how it's granted, what, what the criteria are that are used. Would you talk a little bit about that as being maybe one of the places where you began to be alarmed? Well, if you look at European grant policies and grant policies in Germany now, um, what you realize is that you cannot write a successful grant proposal unless it says something about uh, the importance of global warming and how this particular research that you want to undertake will be useful to fend off global warming, even if it has nothing to do with it. You know, it's becoming part of the canon that um, you just have to do it, because if there's no global warming aspect to your research, it will not be funded. If that is an, an aspect of, I think, a larger problem that we have now, certainly in Germany, um, and other European countries, which is that global warming and climate change has become a sort of religion. You see it in the rhetoric that when you, when you raise criticism against policies uh, addressing global warming, immediately they call you a denier. You know, just like people deny Jesus, you deny global warming. And the whole rhetoric of believing in global warming, believing in climate change, it has become a question of faith and not a question of, um, of scientific research. And that, I think, is, is reason to worry because we're starting to create a new idol, and the idol is called global warming and, um, and the climate. And the language is religious salvation, saving. You want to talk about that? Yeah, that's another aspect. that We now talk about saving the climate and saving Earth. The, the the planet saving earth and um you know part of the issue i think is that it is in the nature of human beings that they want to be engaged in something big something grand something that goes beyond their own limits and the limits of their own small world and what could be better than saving the planet? 
I think that's one reason why especially young people um, are so fascinated by this whole issue of climate change and are willing to to uh, engage themselves because it gives them the feeling that we're saving humanity, we're saving the planet, we're saving the climate, we're doing something that goes far beyond ourselves. And it also has the advantage of being able to condemn your elders as being uh, without morals, without principles, and to have a young woman as your saint. Well, yeah, that's part of it. We Young people can condemn my generation, and they do, for being irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have a a movement in Germany who call themselves last generation. And so they claim that after them, humanity will have uh, perished. And so they come up with all sorts of crazy um, things that they do, including destroying works of art and uh, literature on the argument that they want to raise people's attention so that they do something against climate change. And, you know, it's it's just, um, it's becoming a new religion. Let's back up for a second. Let's talk about scripture, if mm-hmm. we may. And it's often at the interface between, although I would not say that you're any less knowledgeable of scripture than I am, but because I can't talk about economics and haven't made research grants, you know, I will use whatever I do know something about. And something that has really hit me, having been over teaching there in Bonn at Bible Seminar Bonn, and then over in Taiwan at uh, the the Chinese Reformed uh, Presbyterian Seminary in Taipei, something is very, very clear to me is that uh, the church no longer believes in the creation mandates, all right? And I've talked to you about this. Let me just talk a little bit about this at this point so that people, because I've been sort of soft on immigration and sort of soft in my intro on climate change, but I want to make a point that I think will allow people to maybe trust me a little more (laughs) if I say it right at this point, and that is this. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Let us make, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule, focus on that word rule, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then verse 29, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the surface of all the earth. Then if you go over to uh, to chapter 2, and you look at verse 15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. 
So you think of soccer, think of football, and you have a keeper. All right, that's really quite similar to the meaning of the word in Hebrew. Then God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. The point I want to make from this is that the language having to do with the work that God assigns Adam is a language of subjection. It's a language of authority. It's a language of dominion. And it's very popular today for Christian intellectuals, particularly scholars, uh, pastors, It's very popular for us to say, well, the Bible says that we're to be earth keepers, that we're to be creation keepers, that we're to protect, that we're to this, that, and the other thing. And of course, that's true. We're not to squander the precious gifts that God has given us. That's true. But on the other hand, there is a dominion over creation, a subduing of creation that God has commanded. And it's inherent in his commandment to Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, okay? And so God has placed man alone on the earth as the only creature that is made in his image and likeness. And when man does what he's commanded, to subdue, to take dominion, to fill the earth— He is doing, he is obeying what God commanded. And by the way, these commands are not for Christians. These are commands given by God to man, which is what he named the whole race, both men and women. He named us Adam, man. And they apply always and everywhere to everyone. All right, just like all the other creation mandates do, including the mandate to the man to be the head of marriage because he was created first. Now, In Taiwan, in America today, and in Germany, it is very evident to me that nobody is talking about the creation mandates anymore. Everybody's trying to hop on the bandwagon of whatever the moral issue of the day is, whether it's human trafficking or climate change or, you know, it's just like Christians are always trying to say, me too, me too, me too. And I have become convinced that what there's a need for today is a reclamation of the law of God. And specifically, in a way that maybe you could say never in the history of man before has this been true, a reclamation of the creation mandates. We used to take them for granted. They used to be so natural. They used to be so ingrained, so part of the DNA of all people. But today, we're talking about parents giving to their children hormones to bodily change their chemical makeup. We're talking about surgery to alter their sexual organs. We're talking about such such blasphemous desecration of God's authority in saying from, remember Jesus said, from the beginning he made them male and female. And I think a lot of Christians would agree about us saying that, you know, well, yeah, what's going on with this LGBTQ plus thing is really bad. But I have a sneaking suspicion the reason we don't like it is not because we are jealous for the authority of God and the distinctions he's placed in creation, but rather a certain yuck factor, a certain gaucheness, a certain uh, discomfort with things 
that just seems so self-evidently perverse and, and degraded, right? Although we won't use those words. We won't use the word shame, degradation, perverse, abomination, which is what God uses in the Old Testament. Now, why am I bringing this up with global warming? I have always noticed that people that call themselves complementarians consistently deny that complementarianism, the only one that does this differently is John Piper, and he only peeks his head out occasionally, and then he gets hammered and pulls his head back into his shell for a while. But I have noticed that consistently Christians who are complementarians privatize it to the home and the church and make it clear that they do not believe that Adam first and then Eve second has any application to pagans, to worldlings, to the world. And yet they get on their high horse when it comes to the fact that marriage is heterosexual. They get on their high horse when it comes to body parts fitting together in sex. And I want to make the point that you either take all of God's creation mandates and distinctions that are resident in the garden, in the state of perfection prior to the fall, or you don't take any of them. You can't pick and choose the ones and decide who you think they apply to and then teach those people. Now, I'm not bringing this up because of sexuality. I, I realize some people would like to hear a little bit more about that, but I'm not interested in that right now. What I'm interested in is saying that when we look at the Green Revolution, not the Green Revolution, at the Green Movement in Europe, and we look at this group that you talked about, they were called what? Last Generation. Last Generation. We look at St. Greta. That's your nomicker for her, not mine, but I think it's a good one. Uh, when we look at the high moral dudgeon, when we look at the universal approval and mandatory nature of research having some connection to climate change, okay? The whole system is absolutely opposed to being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth. It's opposed to it. Now, there would be many Christians that would say, no, 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 I believe in global warming, and I believe in climate change, but I believe also in having a large family. But can we... Can we admit that that's the exception that proves the rule? The movement is anti-man, anti-Adam. The movement is against man is the problem, man is not the solution. I know some listeners are going, oh, no, no, man isn't the problem. It's just consumption of, you know, of fossil fuels that's the problem. But that's not true because I just was reading a, a study this last week out of Helsinki, University of Helsinki, where they were saying that the bottom has fallen out of any desire of the younger generation to have children. It's not just that they only want to have one and a half or two. It's they don't want any. All right. And this is absolutely true everywhere in the educated world today. Everybody has gotten the message that man is the problem and that to repristinate creation, nature, earth, we have to reduce man. We have to reduce his numbers. It is unsustainable. The word sustainability is integrally related to population decrease. I mean, everybody has to admit this. And what I want to ask those listeners before we get into the deeper parts of a discussion of climate changes 
Do you believe that when God said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, that that is a creation mandate that applies for all time, for all people, until the end of time? Do you actually believe that? Or do you believe the decision to be fruitful in your marriage bed is simply a lifestyle choice or a question of stewardship? And I'm convinced that in Taiwan, which has the second lowest fertility rate of any country in the world, under only South Korea, Germany, the United States, I am convinced that Christians are not being taught to obey the creation mandates, let alone to confess that those mandates apply to their unbelieving neighbors, relatives, to everybody. And I don't believe that God is pleased with us, that we look at the question of making love with our wives and rejoicing in our, the fruitfulness of our wives' womb without feeling like we have to say, well, I think the third child, I can give him a good education, but I'm not sure about, in other words, without reducing it. Now, some people are going to say, well, Tim, are you saying that every couple has to have as many children as they possibly can? And that's a cannard. It's just stupid. I am not saying every couple is required by God to have as many children as they can. But there's a huge gap between that and simply saying, do we believe that the commands of God given in the state of perfection in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall are eternally applicable to everyone? And if somebody thinks that I'm wacko in saying this, would you please get John Murray's book, Principles of Conduct, where he goes on paragraph after paragraph in the 1950s saying that none of the seven creation mandates are abrogated. They apply to the whole human race always and everywhere. And so when we come to global warming, if you live in Taiwan as we did and you're right next to a park, you will watch couples going by who have a nice little baby stroller. And you will watch, as I did one day, where a couple is pushing their baby stroller and they run into a friend. They're in their 20s. And the friend meets them going the other way and he stoops over and, and for a few minutes he talks into the baby stroller. And I have a sneaking suspicion. And sure enough, I say, hey, lover, to Mary Lee, my wife, Come over here, look at this. She comes over, no sooner does she come over than this dog pops its head up out of the baby stroller. They have jewelry stores for their dogs. And this, you know, the, you know, the hairy children, the, the cats, the dogs, the, he, he, we adopted our dog from the shelter. All this stuff, the growth in, uh, certainly in vegetarianism, but also veganism in the church. All of this has a philosophical, a moral thing that we must stop denying. And the moral of it is that man has outlived his usefulness to creation, and it's time for us to bug off. And what we really need to do is reclaim the state of nature that Rousseau talked about, <laughs> you know? And we need to try to bring innocence back. And the only way to do that is to get rid certainly of educated and uh, industrialized and technological people. Now, I'm saying that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I will, I, I will bring it to an end. 
If we don't start speaking to our children in such a way that they understand that the reason that we had a bunch of children is because we believe in obeying God. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The earth is not filled. And I think about some of my friends who are post-millennialists. And so they're talking about Christian nationalism and, you know, all this political stuff. And they're angry over COVID and all this stuff. And I said to you earlier today, Jürgen, something I haven't said before, but I said, you know, if, if we're post-millennial, clearly the first thing we should do is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Because that's the one command that we know God has given universally. And until we begin to understand the undercutting of the image of God in man, that that's what makes him different from animals, until we begin to argue that, until we begin to teach our children those creation distinctions that God our Father Almighty put in his creation— It's laughable to fiddle with subordinate, secondary, tertiary things of Christian doctrine. And I'm so tired of us having half measures of response and of witness to the pagans around us. They're not becoming less pagans because we're so approachable and come out with things like we should we should all be in favor of flourishing. <laughs> you know, we should we should have a more robust view of marriage. We should it's like, come on, guys. Would you tell them that you believe that animals don't have the image of God and therefore it's good and right to eat them because God gave them to us? Now, that's a long spiel, Jürgen. I know that. I've said it to you before. It's no surprise to you. But I wanted to say that before we get into a discussion of global warming or climate change. And the reason I want to say it is I want people to know that I, that we, see the fundamental problems. But that doesn't mean that everything we say is going to make them comfortable because we're for large families, because we believe in eating meat, because, you know. So anyhow, with that as a background, would you open up a little bit, maybe the issue of modeling? Well, before I go there, I, I want to say a couple of things. One is probably in most Christian churches today, both in the United States and in Europe, People are taught the Ten Commandments. They are never taught even the fact that there are creation commandments. That is something that slips by the attention of most pastors and and most most, um, Christians, I would think. And, And part of the reason may very well be that the story of creation is so unpopular in the face of what scientists tell us that we would rather start the Old Testament in chapter 10 <laughs> or 15. That's absolutely you know, just, true. Yeah. Just go over it real quick and not think about it. Um, now, for me as an economist, that's interesting because one of the creation commandments is work. It's very clear to me that God made man to work 
simply because God is at work all the time. Mm -hmm. And if man has been made in the image of God, it's natural that man should work. Now, I I don't necessarily mean work with uh, pick and shovel, but also intellectual work, creative work. And so part of the human nature is to be creative and to find solutions to problems, which certainly applies in this case of uh, global warming and uh, and climate change. Man is not the problem. If there is a solution, man is going to be the solution because there's no other hope than that the creative mind of human beings will find solutions to what we need to do. So that's one thing. The other thing is um, there is at least part of the climate change movement and and the global warming religion, if you want to call it um, that, that they explicitly call for a reduction in the number of human beings on the planet as part of the solution. And so what these people are doing is they, especially if they're Christians, obviously, they play one of God's commands, keep the earth, keep Mm -hmm. creation, against another of God's commands, which is multiply. And this is something that I don't think we we may ever do to play one word of God against another word of God because God cannot contradict himself. And so we have to find a way of thinking about this that combines both of these um, and then move forward and, and have a solution. Can Can I interject here? That's the error of gentle and lowly. The error is pitting some of God's attributes, his perfections against others, and saying that his gentle and lowliness of our Lord is more fundamental than his other attributes. And so it's very common for people to set up the God of the Old Testament as opposed to the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament was, you know, wrathful, angry. Jesus then brought grace. Uh, Jesus' personality and his attributes and his perfections are more this and that and the other thing. So we're constantly pitting God's attributes, his actions, his commands against each other and making a show of honoring him when what we're really doing is attacking some of his truth under the guise of protecting other parts of his truth. So I just want to interject that because... That is a constant, constant thing in the church today, and it's very serious. God is not at war between his justice and his mercy. They both exist in perfect harmony for perpetuity. The other thing I want to say is the other night you and I were talking to a guy who is a scientist and uh, works in the area of climate change, and I thought was very interesting is in our discussion with him, He brought up a number of times the fact that he does not believe that it's right for us to consume the future of our children and our grandchildren by, and he used the word spending, spending the fossil fuels and adding to the carbon. 
and his solution was minimizing, decreasing somehow our consumption of fossil fuels, right? And the thing that was so telling in that discussion with him is that he did not bring up the issue of the natural resource that is principal among all natural resources, which is man, which has a direct connection with being fruitful and multiplying. And so you can say that the response to global warming or climate change or extreme weather, whatever you want to call it, you can say that the answer is to decrease the population of humankind. You can say, well, no, don't decrease the population of humankind, but decrease the consumption of fossil fuels. But nobody ever says that the solution is to increase, to multiply, to fill the earth. Would you talk about that as an economist? Because it's a well-known fact, the natural resource of manhood, you know, not, not as opposed to womanhood, but just that man is the greatest natural resource. Yeah, so if, if you look at um, the history of the world economy over the last, let's say, 300 years approximately, the, the greatest and most important driver of uh, economic growth and development has been the increase in techno technological knowledge by human invention. Now, one of the ways to think about that is um, if you have a large pool of human beings, you have a large pool of potential ideas that need to be discovered and invented. If you reduce that pool by reducing the number of human beings in the pool, um, chances are that you lose a lot of the possibilities to invent and find solutions, among others, to the problem of um, of global warming or, or climate change. In other words, to think that a reduction of the population is a, is a good strategy to overcome global warming, that's just without any foundation. So you say that as an economist, not as a Christian. I say that both as an economist, based on the economic evidence that we have from economic history, and I say it as a Christian. But you could defend it if you were a pagan. Oh, yes, yeah. The people who've done this research, I'm sure most of them are not believing at least there's no evidence that they do and there's no reference in their work necessarily that would make you believe that that they do so let's argue for a second and this would be typical of what i would say to you if we weren't recording so why do you think that the whole world is opposed to population growth and the whole world is proposing decrease in the consumption of fossil fuels and nobody not even Christians, is proposing an increase of man. Well, the, I think it's a typical fallacy of statistics and um, thinking about these issues. So one of the famous curves that you can draw in order to explain global warming is um, 
the number of people on the planet and the consumption of uh, fossil fuels per person. And you see, you see two curves which are rising. And so it's easy to conclude from that that if, if you do the journey backwards and you reduce the number of heads on the planet, um, that you're going to reduce uh, the emission. Are you saying that's not true? No, of course it's not true. <laughs> it's very simple to think about why it is not true for two, and, and basically for two reasons. Most population growth that we've seen in the past 50 years are exactly in those regions of the world where the consumption of um, carbon fuels is the lowest. So it can't just be a number of heads. And secondly, suppose we reduce the number of heads in Europe and in the United States by 15% tomorrow. Would that reduce the emission of greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases by 15%? No, of course not, because our homes are still the same size. Hmm. Our cars still need the same amount of, of fuel, whether or not there are three people sitting in them or one person sitting in them. So we have a lot of just fixed expenditures to use that term, or fixed spending, that is quite independent from the number of people who currently use it. You would get some adjustment, but if you wanted to, or if you did reduce the number of uh, people in Europe and the United States, you would get some adjustment because new homes would probably be built of smaller size and things like that. So it's this simple coupling of the size of the population and the consumption of of uh, fossil fuels is that's just a fallacy of mm -hmm. statistics. And just to remind you, it's it's a very old one. There yes, was, it is. Mm -hmm. There was an economist in Britain in the second half of the nineteenth century called. Jevons. Jevons wrote on coal mining and the end of coal mining in uh, Britain. And Jevons predicted that by the end of the 19th century, economic growth and industry would come to an end in Britain because they, they would become unable to dig ever deeper and ever deeper and extract coal out of the British ground. Well, we know now that that prediction was false. Mm -hmm. And then we had um, the, uh, the famous Club of Rome mm -hmm. report, which predicted that by now, 2023, we would all live on trees again. Mm-hmm. And what has happened since? And the what's what's mentioned, Paul Ehrlich? He yeah. was on the Tonight Show twenty yes. times. What has happened since the Club of Rome issued their first report, which I think was in 1972, is we have invented all sorts of technologies that use fossil fuels more efficiently. Mm -hmm. 
we have invented technologies to um, extract fossil fuels from the ground in ways that would have been unimaginable mm -hmm. in 1972. And one of the ways to look at that is since the early 1970s, we have statistics that tell us how many more years will we have um, um, the ability of uh, producing crude oil given current reserves. And since the early 70s, it has always been 50 years. So as we move <laughs> through time, we always have 50 years mm -hmm. to go. Mm -hmm. And I see no reason why that would change. Um, we have become much, much more efficient in using um, carbon fuels and also in reusing them and recycling and all mm -hmm. these things. The human mind is a treasure mm -hmm. of creativeness because it was made in the image of God. I always say to parents in church, I say to them that to have a child is an act of faith. But I would add that for a culture, for a society, for a nation to have children is an act of faith. It's not just true on the individual level. And another thing I want to say is when I was a young man in my 20s, I was an environmentalist. I read Barry Commoner, and he had all these articles where he showed that the consumption of fossil fuels was growing at an exponential rate. I knew what exponential growth was back then, and I was a true believer. But then we hit natural gas deposits that just boggled the mind mm -hmm. and then i was a believer in, in uh, paul ehrlich saying that there would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of deaths in the last part of the 20th century because of starvation and then we watched as you had this this unbelievable blessing from god through uh plant geneticists where the Green Revolution hit, and nobody in their right mind ever believed that the Iron Wall would fall. All right, now I'm, I'm jumping, but I'm making a point. It was inconceivable, those alive in the late 80s, that there would be an end to the Cold War, that Russia, the Soviet Union, would fall apart. Inconceivable. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody thought it would happen, but God acted. God acted. Now, I know that President Reagan and the Pope and Lechweiss and Solzhenitsyn, yeah, I know that people contributed to it, but it was mind-boggling. Well, the same thing happened with the Green Revolution. Nobody had any ability to conceive of both China and India becoming self-sustaining in terms of their food, let alone exporters. And so when we were talking to our friend who's, you know, does work in, in climate change and is a scientist, you know, I said to him, you scientists have a credibility problem with somebody that's older than 22 <laughs> because we have watched paradigm shift after paradigm shift through our lifetimes and anybody that's aware can watch this just simply in terms of the latest recommendations for the consumption of cheese and butter and red meat you know it i mean it's almost funny to to see you know the american cancer society what are they saying america you know the heart people what are they saying today 
You know what I'm saying? It just changes constantly, but forget health. My point is, science is not the God, the omniscient God that everybody says science is. It doesn't mean that there won't be climate change. It doesn't mean that it won't flood all of Florida, okay? I'm not sure, but certainly I am, I am absolutely convinced that the best thing we can do to address it is to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. And you just got done saying that even from an unbelieving economist, that there are many of them that would agree with that, that what we really need is more people so there are more ideas, more creativity. More economic growth. But see, people listening are going to have a fit about that, right? Because economic growth is viewed as a baddie. I mean, that's, isn't that the antithesis of sustainability? No. But that's what everybody thinks, right? Right? Well, for one thing, in order to create a sustainable economy, whatever that is, will take a lot of investment and therefore a lot of economic growth. And open up that a little bit in terms of well, the carbon me, credits yeah, at le, some point. Let me just give you one example. So earlier this year, the German government proposed a law that would force everybody, basically everybody whose house was built prior to 2012 or 13 to install new heating equipment, new heaters. That, and the idea is uh, two only heating systems would be allowed if they, if they work f to at least two-thirds on um, renewable energy. Hmm. So if you have a gas heating system in your house, forget it. Buy a, um, something that works on green energy or renewable energies. Now you realize that what that says is about 80% of the housing stock needs to replace their heating systems. Mm -hmm. One of the first um, reactions that we saw was that American companies that make heating systems were happy. Bought German manufacturers <laughs> that make heating systems because we, we Americans are because, resourceful. <laughs> yeah, because the German companies hadn't figured out yet that <laughs> this was going to be a huge boost. And in order to manage that, they need to build new plants and get additional machinery and workers. And it's going to produce a huge boom for the foreseeable future. And the same is true with a lot of other things. If we want to be um, emission-free or emission-neutral in in 2050, we have to replace a major part of our capital stock, and that includes cars and trains and heating. And, and shipping. And shipping and 
steel making. We just uh, saw that the German government improve, um, approved a, a subsidy to one of Germany's major steel making to build a plant where steel will be cooked by hydrogen or with hydrogen. We don't even know whether that will ever work. Hmm. But the idea is, well, if we, if we build that plant now, it's going to be ready for use in about 10 years. If, they, if and you then build in, it, they will come. And then in 10 years, we will have actually the technology to cook steel with that new uh, technology. So all of this says it takes more economic activity and not less economic mm -hmm. activity to make our our economies uh, less intensive in the use of uh, carbon fuels now i want to go go back a, a couple of steps here and and uh, come back to an earlier question which you which you asked um, so when you look at global warming there's there's a number of very fundamental questions attached to it. One has to do with the fact that when I went to school, we were told that the earth was cooling, that we were going to inescapably march towards the next ice age, and we better get ready to deal with that. Now, that's about, what, 60 years ago. And here we are, we talk about global warming. The reason why I'm saying that is when people talked about the next ice age at the time, the idea was we are on a trend that will continue for the next five, six, seven hundred years until the ice actually arrives in Bloomington and mm -hmm. in Bonn. Mm -hmm. We're now talking about global warming, and we have measurements, true measurements, of the temperature of the Earth for maybe 30, 40, 50 years. On the time scale of the history of creation, that's nothing. And so whether this is a trend or it is a... It is a rise that will be reversed at some point, just like the cooling was reversed at some point. We have no idea. It's like, you know, I, I like to think about a little aunt walking along a street and realizing that the, the slope increases. But the street or the road is like 10 kilom kilometers or 10 miles long. This little animal has no way of finding out whether from now on it will have to climb a slope or this is just a speed bump. And it crawls along and goes up a little bit, and then goes down a little bit. We simply do not have the data. Now, then, of course, 
scientists have started estimating temperatures of the Earth back hundreds and perhaps a few thousand years. And they say, but we know what the temperature was. And yeah, we have estimates. But these estimates are based on models, and models are representations of human fantasy. Whether these models are true or false, we will not know for the next few hundred years because we have only one observation, which is this world. That's all which we is have. 50 years. And the 50 years we're dealing with. And then part of the answer to that, to that um, point is that they say, well, but we have these climate models that use um, data from, or estimated data from a long time ago, and they are able to reproduce what we've seen in the last 50 years. We've had very similar problems like that in economics, where we have very short periods of, of actual observation. So we generate additional observations from history, and then we build models to reproduce what we observe. And I always tell my students, that doesn't tell you anything about the validity of your model. All it tells you is that you're pretty smart in modeling. So you can manipulate your model so that it re reproduces the last few years of, mm -hmm. of observation. Whether these models are true or false, we have no idea. And the same goes for more sophisticated models that climate researchers use that embody all sorts of um, complicated physics and laws of physics. And, and they're able to come up with scenarios that tell us, well, the last 50 years were like this, and so then with some, uh, we generate a, a future trajectory of where climate and earth temperatures will go. But we can't say whether these are good models or bad models because we only have one observation. Mm -hmm. And the, the law of science is that you need a lot of observations to see whether a model is a good model or a bad model. Now, that brings me back to an earlier point, which is that's where believing starts. You have this model. If you're honest about it, you don't know whether it's a good model or a bad model. And so what you take is a leap of faith in the same way that Kierkegaard talked about the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. At some point, you have to make a decision to jump. And that, again, shows to what extent this whole global warming issue is akin to religion. You know, I, I've told you about a conversation I had with a guy getting his doctorate in history of science at IU, which you have been 
a professor at for 30 years, 30 years, holding joint appointments, both at IU and Bonn. He was in our church, um, history of science. And one night, while the rest of the church played football, you say, soccer, we say, um, I went back behind the place where we were playing. It was a public school. We sat up against the dumpster because I was concerned about him. And what I was concerned about was that it was apparent to me that his uh, commitment to higher education, to the terminal degree, to academe, to, to the whole shebang was overwhelming his commitment to Scripture. Now, these are judgments that pastors make. We watch carefully our sheep, and when they're in danger, we talk to them. I don't have to justify what I just said. I'm just going to tell you as a pastor that was my concern. I loved him. I loved his wife, their children. And I decided one night I needed to talk to him. And I remember talking to him, and with academics, it's almost always creation versus evolution. I mean, they won't say it that baldly, but it does come down to that. And I remember saying to him, you know, I have never known a man, let alone a man in higher education. And I've known a lot of professors, a lot, at Wheaton and Boulder and Madison, you know, Keith Yandel, philosopher, uh, John Moline, David Lindbergh, History of Science, they were all in our church. And I have never known a man who, uh, I don't know how to say it, <laughs> uh, thought of himself as, as a scholar, as an academic, as an intellectual, who it was not clear, very clear, which had higher authority. Is discipline or scripture? Hmm. I've never known somebody that that wasn't clear. Never. And so when you're sitting here talking, I'm sitting here feeling, yikes, yikes, yikes. Any academic who's listening to you is going to say, how dare you be so dismissive of the modeling? Well, I'm, I'm not dismissive of modeling per se. Um we need models in everyday life, and we can't live without models. You know, every map is a model. Every um, user's guide is a model. Physicists and other scientists happen to use models which are in the form of mathematics, but the basic idea of a model is that you get rid of all the small things and you focus on the big things and those give you an explanation of how in principle something works now the big question is are you focusing on the right big things and that question you can only answer if you can confront your model with enough data in order to find out. One observation is not enough. 
Yeah, but you're saying, hold on, I'm going to push you a little bit. You're saying that 50 years is not enough, okay? That's where we have actual data. And if I'm listening as a scholar, I'm thinking, dude, who are you to say 50 years isn't enough? You're going to be dismissive of something that there is consensus across the scientific world. Well, that's nonsense. That, that is just pure nonsense. Science lives from disagreement. And if anybody tells me there is consensus in the scientific world, I get very suspicious because that's not how science functions. Now, let me give you an example from my own field. Back in 1968, 69, all economic policymakers would tell you there is consensus in the world of economics that you can control the economy as if you fly an airplane. It just takes, you know, moving a lever <laughs> here and moving a lever there. And it was called Keynesian economics. And the idea was you can control economic growth and consumption and inflation and unemployment perfectly all by, you know, pushing here and pushing there. Fly by wire. And, uh, and then comes the oil price shock and a number of unexpected events in the 1970s. And by 1975, no serious economist would have su subscribed to Keynesian models anymore because we knew it was crap. And so, of course, what do you do? You create new models. And those new models gave much less of a role to the government to control the economy, which is why the government and the policymakers never loved those models very much. We had a very similar thing going on in, in the 1990s when, uh, because the economic environment was so stable and growth-friendly, um, people thought we will never have recessions again. Hmm. We have it all under control. We know exactly what the Fed has to do in order to control the economy. And that went well for 10 years, and then we had the big financial crisis. And so what I want to say is we have a tendency to start trusting in models because we haven't seen when they fail. And the only way to find out whether a model is a good model or it's a bad model is to confront it with data and data and data as much as you can. Now, is 50 years a lot? That depends on, on the object that you're studying. 50 years of flipping a coin could give you an idea. 50 years of flipping a coin would give you the same answer that you get from flipping it 50 times. Mm -hmm. um, but relative to the history of this planet, 
And relative to the speed with which we think global warming and cooling happens, 50 years is nothing. That's mm. just very little. And you can see it by all the attempts and efforts that that climate researchers have invested in modeling data and estimating data from hundreds of years back in order to find a substitute mm -hmm. for real data. But, you know, in a way that's like looking into an electronic microscope and see the movements of atoms and particles, you think that that's what you're seeing, but you're only seeing what the microscope models for you. Mm -hmm. That's how the microscope was built, so that you can see something, whether what is actually there corresponds to that, what to what you see, is a question we cannot answer. It's an interesting question, but we can't answer it. Reminds me of premarital counseling, <laughs> where you have a couple in love and you try to explain to them where they're going to have conflict after they get married. And they just look at you like you're an idiot because they're the couple that actually loves each other, you know. And, <laughs> and after years and years of doing premarital counseling and thinking yeah. that you're really going to help them and everything, I finally got to the point like, listen, you're not listening to me. Come back in a year. Come back after you get married. <laughs> but you, you know, that that's a good example because the way you go into that counseling session is having a model. Right? You have some systematic... Now, I think the way I go in that counseling have, session is they have a model and they're certain well, of but their you model. Do, you do too. You call it pastoral experience. But yeah, yeah. Which is that That's the pastor's the an idiot to think that anything he says will have any impact on the success of their marriage if he says it prior to their wedding. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's an exaggeration. So um, I still feel the difficulty of people listening. And I, I want to get eventually to the issue of children, okay? Mm. To what, how we raise our children and how we work to teach them to live in this world where they're going to be assaulted as soon as they come of age. But before we get to that, um, I don't know if I'm right to say this, but I think scholars have a dirty little secret. And the dirty little secret is paradigm shift. And the dirty little secret is also the whole discussion of how many studies are reproducible. And the dirty little secret is also your statement over and over again, where you say the wonderful thing about climate change is it's, it's, you can't falsify it. You, there's absolutely no way to disprove it. And so I don't know how you do this, but could you talk a little bit about the issues of paradigm shifts about falsifiable, about, you know, because I feel like no individual scientist is ever willing to admit that about his discipline or his area of his discipline. While he may grant it cosmically about science, even about hard sciences. So would you discuss that a little bit? Yeah, there was 
a ruling, maybe by the Supreme Court of this country, maybe by some other court, where the question before the judges was, what is science? And the court ruled that science is what scientists do. Well, that's helpful. <laughs> well, it, it's helpful if you come to think about it, because what it tells you is science is a human enterprise, like digging for gold or building an airplane. You have a group of people working together to find out the truth of something. Much like in other teams, somebody will take the lead and say, hey, this is the way you do it. And then they make a few discoveries and they think, oh yeah, that's the way to do it. And others follow them. And so they start building an, an explanation of the world, and that could be climate, that could be any field in, in sciences, they build an explanation and they keep digging for truth and they keep digging out things that confirm the model. Until somebody digs in another place and says, wait a minute, here is a contradiction. And so the first thing that then happens is the leaders will say, yeah, it's a contradiction, but we can integrate it into our explanation mm -hmm. by doing a little twist here and a little twist there. But eventually, the evidence against the explanation will be, become so overwhelming that then what happens is a paradigm shift. Yeah, those so, of you who follow the evolution debate think punctuated equilibrium. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. So um, this, by the way, goes back to a very good and important book by a historian of science or philosopher of science, uh, Thomas Kuhn, back in the mid-1960s, I think. Um, where he shows that the dynamics of the scientific enterprise lead to these developments that you follow the leader and you're successful. And if you want to build a career as a young scientist, you do what the leaders say, and that's the way how you gain recognition. Mm -hmm. And that's the way how you gained your position in Pastors academia. following gospel coalition. Until finally some young punk comes up and says, guys, this is wrong. And then he becomes the next leader and everybody follows him. <laughs> so um, one of the lessons you get from that book is when, as I read today, um, 13,000 scientists around the world, sign a letter that we urgently need to do something, I get very suspicious. Because, because good science is not about agreement. Good science is about keep digging, find out where the holes are in your models, and improve them. 
when some, and by the way um this is also the um the work of the um intergovernmental panel on climate change mm -hmm. the un panel yeah. mm -hmm. they come up with these statements that thousands of scientists around the world now um subscribe to a certain theory and then people have looked at that and find out well the experts in that particular theory are not thousands they measure in the dozens pressure politically or relationally is so intense that people sign on because they know that's where their bread is buttered or that's where the bread of the scientific community or research or whatever it is, that's the bread buttering, you know? And I don't think that's uncommon. And I know that it's very different between a church and a scientific community. But, I mean, the idea that because you have 3,000 Israelites in the wilderness screaming against Moses, that makes them right? <laughs> you know? So I want to go back to the point of modeling for just one second. As I said earlier, we use models in our everyday lives all the time. Models in the sense that we have simplifications and summaries and we focus on what we think are the important features of the situation we're looking at so modeling is unavoidable and it's a great feature of science but having said that we always have to be aware of the fact that every model is necessarily false False in the sense that no model in the world can replicate what we observe as reality completely. Because if it could, it wouldn't be a model. It would just be a picture of reality. Now, the point where this becomes important is when we start drawing conclusions from our models and turn them into policies. There's a big difference between having one model on which you base your policies or saying, I know that I have a model and somebody else maybe have a different one and we're not sure exactly which one is the right model. That's a very important feature of policy making because it makes you aware of the fact that when you do everything right under one model, you may make grave mistakes under another model. And so you have to really think about very carefully what policy steps do I want to take, given that we're uncertain about the validity of uh, our models. Let me give you an example. In, like I said, in Germany, the government wants to replace a large amount of the um, housing stock or the heating in the housing stock. It's going to cost an enormous amount of money. So that law is still and in place. That law is still in the making. It has It has been changed a little bit. 
and it will be finally passed um, when Parliament gets together this fall. Under the model that the government thinks is right, it is a good policy, but it has its costs. It will take an enormous amount of resources, and it will make some people very poor, which now are economically okay because they simply can't afford the new heating systems. In the situation where you have as much model uncertainty as there is in the climate business, any policy response ought to be... Conservative. Well, not necessarily conservative, but but using a lot of caution and be very circumspect and take into account the possibility that your model might be wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean you're not doing anything, but it could mean that when you have policy A that's very good under your model and very bad under another model, and you have policy B which is reasonably good under your model and reasonably good under another model, Mm -hmm. you would rather take policy B and not policy A. I know this is going to set people's teeth on edge, but as I listen to you, what I think of is pastors and marriages that often in the process of working through the potential for a marriage between a man and a woman, you will look at the character of one or the other or both and their family background, and you will say to yourself, this cannot be successful. And you will be so convinced of it as you approach marriage that you will be inclined to tell them it won't work or to say, I'm sorry, I can't do your marriage. Now, there are circumstances where I, as a pastor, and every biblical pastor will say, I can't do this marriage. But I'm not talking about those situations. I'm talking about where your model for what kind of personality should go with what kind of what kind of family, all this stuff. And... One thing that's beautiful in the ministry, and maybe it's wrong to say this, but there are some marriages you thought would be perfect that end up being hellacious. Hmm. And regularly, there are marriages that you thought would be hellacious that end up being godly. Okay. And I want to use that as an example of the necessity of people who control policy decisions, who control the future, to realize that they actually aren't the ones to make the decision. In my case, it's actually the man and the woman. I am not the one to make the decision. There are times where I have to say this marriage can never have God's blessing because of the circumstances leading up to it. But an awful lot of the times I'm uncomfortable. It's not because it can't have God's blessing. It's because me and my estimable judgment, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? And it seems to me that that's what we're lacking so often in discussions of climate change. There's no humility. Everybody is so committed to their data, to their model. And the very fact that the UN and its committees would feel a need to get together three or 8,000 people to sign a document, you know, I thought when you were talking about that, I thought of Samuel Johnson saying, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster I counted my spoons. (laughs) 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, when you have all those people signing a document, if anything, that indicates to me that they're screaming because they're fearful. Yeah, and they're part of a crowd where they want recognition, and if they don't sign, then they'll be expelled from the crowd. Um, science is not democracy. It's that simple. Now, coming back to policies, I think independently of the models we use, certainly it makes a lot of sense to to be economical in the use of our resources. There's a lot of waste mm -hmm. of carbon mm -hmm. fuels. Yes, you know, when, when I first came to the United States in, back in 1987, I often observed that people would drive up to the grocery store, leave the, the engine running, <laughs> in walk the in, in, in Wisconsin, <laughs> and come back 20 minutes later. And, you know, that ought not to be. And part of that, of course, is a matter of price. And if we think that that ought not to be, maybe we should put a little more taxes on gasoline, mm -hmm. which um, there are other cases where energy is being, say, is, is being wasted, which ought not to be. And that, to me, is part of the creation mandate to keep the guard. Yes, absolutely. But can I re have a rejoinder, which is to say, I have heard countless times from young couples who decide that they are going to give their fruitfulness to God of their marriage bed, who their PCA, conservative, reformed parents, are just pissing on them for having another child. Because as their parents see it, that's an irresponsible consumption of resources. I mean, really, the resource of the mother's time and attention, the resources of the father having to work. And so, again, it brings me back to this issue of marriages. It is not our job to be the policeman of other people's consumption of resources. Now, I'm with you. I think we should make a law that says that people can't leave their engines running when they're outside of Walmart, but they can when they're outside of Kroger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but still there's a difference there, right? I well, mean, yeah, they, Walmart people are ignorant and Kroger people no, no, are... No, 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 that's not what I mean. When, <laughs> when people, when a couple has another child, that child will make a positive contribution to... The creativity of mankind, yeah, I know. and to the ability of mankind to work and, and to obey, to obey and to provide. When somebody lets his car run in front of the grocery store, he He's adds fulfilling a creation. He man. adds to pollution <laughs> in a totally unnecessary way. <laughs> Although he is warmer when he gets in the car. <laughs> well, yes, but I've seen this even during spring, you know, when you you neither heat nor cool the car. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, going against waste of carbon fuels and other things, I, I think that's 
That's a Christian duty anyway, because it follows from the creation mandate. We should not waste resources that God has given us. Yeah, and I want to say that my house is incredibly tight and has been certified as one of the lowest. I mean, it's about as low as you can get a national in terms of airtightness. I have Mm -hmm. a or ERV that exchanges the air to keep it from becoming polluted. I have geothermal. Mary Lee and I drove Priuses for five years, Prius C, not the big hog, but the small one. And back in the 1970s, I drove a diesel rabbit. I never forget pulling a trailer that weighed 1,850 pounds behind my car that was loaded to the gills from Madison, Wisconsin to Boulder, Colorado in third gear most of the time and getting 37 miles per gallon. Not bad. (laughs) Those old diesel rabbits made in Germany, but then they started making them in Brazil and they were awful. And so I, I do believe, and Andrew, who's the host of this show, he just put in a huge array of solar cells at his business, a manufacturing business. And I have been advocating for years that the church I formerly served would not simply put in, you know, HVAC units that were these huge, you know, uh, consumers of electricity and natural gas. But we have a, you know, we have 210, 220 acres of farmland. I wanted us to buy a, a backhoe and hire a guy to just spend his summer digging trenches that we could have geothermal for the whole church. And so I am not opposed to um, being aware of our fossil fuel consumption, Um, but it is not a religion, and it is not certain. Would you talk a little bit about the issue of um, that recent study that came out about you know, the carbon credits. Okay, carbon credits is a a mechanism that allows producers in the United States, for example, to present themselves as climate neutral, although they emit uh, greenhouse gases in the process of production. And the way they do it is they buy certificates from an an institution, mainly an institution based in uh, Washington, D.C., but it's a business institution. It's not a government institution. And this institution uses the money to subsidize farmers and communities, for example, in Brazil or in Peru, in Colombia, places where there's rainforest, essentially they pay them money for not um, destroying the forest or even um, slash and, slash refo- and burn. reforestation. Mm-hmm. And so there, there were a number of studies at the end of last year and early this year that have looked at the effectiveness of these policies. And the question they ask is, 
is this policy effective in the sense they are there really is a, a stop or a decline of deforestation in the rainforest so that more trees are saved and more trees work as uh, deposits of um, greenhouse gases, which is the basic idea behind all this. And what they find is that there are question marks. Let me summarize it that way. Some some studies find that the effects are there. Some studies find that no effects are there. Where the difference comes from is that you have to ask yourself what would have happened to a particular piece of rainforest if we had not subsidized the community and the farmers. And that requires two things. You have to know what the situation was when this policy was started. But then if you know that, it's not enough to just um, think about a continuation of that particular uh, scenario at the beginning. You also have to think about, since this program started, what what else has happened? And so one example is uh, they looked at uh, pieces of rainforest in Brazil that fell under these programs of um, uh, certificates, but then also the Brazilian government instituted new environmental policies at the beginning of the 2000s that stopped deforestation. And so now you look at a piece of rainforest and you see that deforestation declined and you have to ask yourself is that because of the certificates yeah why or is it because Mm -hmm. of the particular policies of the brazilian government and so it's tricky to find out what exactly happens that's why these studies differ even if you find that the policies that or these programs that we have today are not very effective, it doesn't mean that it's a bad idea. What it means is there is not enough monitoring to make sure that the policies are effective. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you a question, which I think is important. I remember years ago, Larry Allen, a pastor, Presbyterian pastor in the PCUSA, then moved into the PCA down in Houston. We were on the board of Presbyterians Pro-Life. And I remember in a board meeting one day, Larry saying, you know, we think that people make a decision to have an abortion, but he said, actually, abortion is God's judgment on us. And that immediately rang true with me. And I think one thing that Christians who are very aware of, you know, the the politics of America today, Republican, Democrat, uh, anti-Trump, Trumpites, the elite, people that are very aware of what's going on politically in our country, I think we have to be careful 
or maybe I should ask you, since you're the scholar, do we not have to be careful declaring on the basis of our um, political allegiances what's bunk? Because I have this feeling that maybe climate change is slightly before fire and wrath fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, how do we know? I remember asking David Lindbergh, a history of science guy up at UW-Madison, who's well-known in his discipline. And one day I was cleaning his carpet, and he described to me how he had investigated a whole bunch of cases where Christians claimed that they had been healed. All right? And he said to me, you know, Tim, I went out and investigated them, and I found that every single one of them, if there wasn't another explanation, the explanation was that there was, there was a psychosomatic aspect to their sickness or to their limitation. And I said to him, Dr. Lindbergh, let me ask you a question. If God came here and healed somebody, do you think that you would recognize it and rejoice. Hmm. And of course it flummoxed him because he realized right away that he had a predisposition or a firm commitment <laughs> to deny that it ever happened because that was his worldview. You know, I, I don't want to say it was, you know, the blind clock, clock maker, you know, I want us to be careful on the issue of climate change to not box God in because of our political commitments or because of our skepticism about scientists. You want to address that. It's just, it's a very, it's a very serious thing. I think that God could use climate change to bring on the last judgment. Now I know people that believe in post-millennialism would have a fit hearing me say that, but are we really certain if we're cessationists that God absolutely will not send a prophet. I've said that to cessationists. I've said, you know, do you think that it's possible God would send a prophet before the, the end of the age? And they say, well, I guess so, yeah. And I say, do you think you believe him? <laughs> and at that point, they're just silent. I don't want us to box ourselves into a corner where we feel that to be a Christian necessitates our denying that there's any truth to climate science. Or to climate change, I should say. Maybe that's uncomfortable for you. Well, I don't see how we can seriously say that we believe in God Almighty as we pray in church and then say climate change has nothing to do with God. That's just a blatant contradiction. If we think that God is Almighty then, of course, he has the power to, uh, to work climate change, and he has the power to stop it. And saying that, it, it doesn't mean that climate change is the beginning of the last judgment. It could be a judgment mm -hmm. of which... Um, we have many records in the Bible, and we have 
historical experience, I, I think. Let me just give you one example. Um, I love the, the book of Habakkuk. Mm-hmm. He's that guy who sits on a hill above Jerusalem or overlooking Jerusalem, and he complains to God about all the bad things happening mm-hmm. in that city. And God at one point says to him, now, what I'm going to tell you, you will not believe, but I'm already raising up a people so terrible and so cruel that you won't believe it, and they will come and destroy the city. Now, historians will look at the event of the destruction of the city later and say, well, that was the army of some people or some king. But where did did the army come from? Did God lie when he said, I'm raising up a people for myself? Mm -hmm. And when God says at the end of, uh, or in the middle of the book of Isaiah, my servant, King Cyrus, Well, that says something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In the prophet, in the book of the prophet Amos, God says, if there is disaster, is it not me who sent it? Mm-hmm. Why should that be different for climate change? It almost seems as if reformed Pastors and theologians today are deists. Yeah, because that's a comfortable position. Mm-hmm. Because then we don't have to think about punishment. Remember when John or Piper judgment. I remember when John Piper was talking about the fact that lightning struck a church where the Lutheran ELCA was deciding to approve of homosexuality, if I remember correctly. And I mean evangelicals went hog wild in fury. Hmm. You know, that anybody would associate the hand of God with any judgment, and yet all across church history, all across, you know, I think of Cotton Mather and his uh, The Works of Christ in America, where he goes through notorious judgments of God, notorious acts of mercy. He lists things like where a notorious sinner is riding on his horse and lightning strikes him. And it does seem as if our commitment to political machinations, our commitment to eschatology, our commitments to um, political philosophy— relegate God, and I wouldn't even say a subordinate, I'd say a tertiary, I'd say a minimal role. It's almost as if God doesn't enter into our thinking about why certain things are going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we all like to look down on Billy Graham and Ruth, but I remember back in the 70s, Ruth Bell Graham, Clayton Bell's sister and Nelson Bell of World Magazine's uh, daughter, saying, if God doesn't judge America soon, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was back in the 70s. And you look at the wickedness of our nation, 
And if you forget all the science, all the modeling, everything, you forget the political arguments, you forget fossil fuels, everything, and you just think about salvation history, it seems as if that's the best argument for climate change. You know, it just seems like something would be right if Florida was all of a sudden underwater, let alone Las Vegas. Yeah, but you know... I'm not the, saying I want it. The, and I know I'm pressing you. You're a scientist. You're a scholar. The question then <clears throat> is, suppose for a moment that's true. What are we going to do with it? Shall we then... Repent. Why is repentance never the answer to any public policy issue among Reformed Christians? Shall we then just sit still? No, and repent. Watch it? Repent is proactive. And so <laughs> repent is proactive. And I, preaching repentance. But I, th but I think there's another part to it, and that may be part of repentance, which is we then have to think how we can make sure that the harm that's done to human beings is as little as possible. In other words, it may be foolish to think that we can save Florida as a piece of real estate, Okay, now but listen. we can save, nah, nah, we nah, can nah, save nah, people. Nah, nah, nah. Now listen a second. I know people are uncomfortable with us arguing. But listen, Noah was what? Was Noah working for Christian nationalism? Was Noah promoting millennialism? You know, was he a millenarian? Was Moses working to have canals that would carry off the water that would rain? Was he trying, was he raising uh, an NGO that would protect species of animals? What, it, what the Bible tells us is he was a preacher of righteousness. What, what really irritates me is that preaching, repentance, God's law, his holiness, and the blood of Christ is never the solution that's proposed by conservative reform talking heads. What, what Noah did was mm -hmm. he preached. He preached. And I look around at Reformed pulpits, they don't preach. I know they preach, but there's nobody talking. None of the talking heads on social media are saying that the solution to any of these public policy issues, any of these apocalyptic, you know, none of this. It's never the solution. The solution is for us to be smarter than they are and argue better than they do and, and point out to our children that da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I have a friend named Paul Cote I went through seminary with, and he worked in city government, city management for years. He wrote me yesterday, and he said, I'm going to preach this Sunday because my, my pastor's wife is dying. Mm. And he sent me his sermon. And the sermon was on the text about woe unto you Bethsaida and Chorazin. Because what? Well, because Sodom and Gomorrah mm -hmm. will have it better than you have it. And he went on to describe the fact that we have all seen the unbelievable mercy of God. We are in church because of his mercy. We would never 
I wouldn't have saved myself. And he shows how God has done miracles in our lives of repentance and faith. And then he says, but despite those miracles, we don't repent. Why is repentance never a serious proposal of anyone discussing climate change? I think it's because reform men have become deists, honestly. That's what I believe. I read all those descriptions of deism in those books that you had me read. And I mean, it, I mean, they were all post-millennialists. They just saw that every day in every way the world was getting better and better, that, you know, economics was increasing, population was increasing. We had an unlimited frontier to keep expanding into. We had trains. We had all this stuff. And it's kind of like BART hitting the world war. And all of a sudden, Bart's like, hey, you know what? I believe in sin. <laughs> Maybe God is scary. I would still say if we recognize if we recognize that God is in control and he therefore is also in control over climate change, we ought to repent, but we also ought to think about how we can make the suffering of humans as little as possible. So the difference between us and Noah is what? Because there is a difference. What's the difference? Well, one of the differences is that God told Noah, go yeah, and build exactly an ark. Right. That's exactly right. And we have to use our own smarts. And the scientists are trying to tell us to build an ark, but the scientists aren't God. I'm not even sure that the scientists are telling us to build an ark. Right now, I think... Telling us to kill ourselves? The scientists are trying to... to convince us that they have ways to stop climate change so that we can continue living as we've done and maybe eat less meat although that's nonsense oh car cows fart <laughs> yeah. they produce a lot of methane let me ask before we bring this to an end my can I say my heart without being sentimental? Hmm. I have 30 grandchildren now, two in the womb and one great grandchild. And I feel very much the um, vulnerability of young souls to the ideology and the wickedness of climate change. St. Greta, high moral dudgeon, shaming, I fear that most Christians are just simply saying, well, my children know that this is all a scheme. It's all, you know, a counterfeit. It's all bad science. It's just part of the people that are opposed to President Trump. They're arresting him. In other words, we get all of our commitments on these issues as a ball of wax. <laughs> and we expect our children to love us and to for us to pass on to them our opposition to this whole ball of wax. And I'm absolutely certain from ministering most of my life in a university community 
that this will not work. And that we have to stop trying to handle things politically with partisanship. And we have to begin to take seriously the accusations that are leveled against us, knowing that our children are vulnerable to those accusations, okay? And I wonder, do you have advice for parents of, say, 8 to 12-year-olds who are about to become 13 or 13 to 17-year-olds who are about to go out of the house and work or to go out of the house and go to uni or to college? What would you say to them about this issue of climate change? What should we as parents be doing with our children in such a way that they are protected from the wolves who are ready to tell them that their parents are unprincipled, materialists, who live for consumption and have no compassion for unborn generations? Well, number one, I would warn them against making the same mistake that that those who now treat climate change as a new religion make. They abuse science for the purpose of creating a new religion. We should not make the same mistake and say, oh, it's just bad science because we think we're smarter. The science is good. The question is, what do you make of it? Mm-hmm. That's the critical question. Which is why you function on models, right? Yeah. This, the science is good. This, the modeling is good. But that's not where we can stop. We have to ask ourselves, how do we handle a situation in which the models are very uncertain? Mm-hmm. What is our responsibility in this kind of situation. So that's one thing. We should not teach our our children to make the same mistake as the other side made. And the other thing I would say is parents teach your kids to learn to argue. Oh, my goodness. That's hopeless. Well. People have to have ego strength to I, argue, and that requires a father who's involved in their lives. Yeah, so get involved in their lives. But it's, you know, one of the things that always impressed me about um, our law department is they have debating clubs where they learn to debate. Mm -hmm. They learn to recognize an argument and to respond to it Mm -hmm. in a convincing way. Why don't church youth groups teach that well it's because everybody's so personally emotionally insecure i mean you disagree with someone and they turn into a a bowl of jello that's melted (laughs) no i'm absolutely serious i've been on the internet since the late 90s and trying to get people to engage in argument without i i mean i am so sick of people saying to me online i i don't want to be disrespectful but Or they will say to me, and this is the thing that drives me bonkers, is they'll say to me, well, I know you feel strongly. And I always say to them, we're not talking about my feelings. We're talking about truth. 
would you read my feelings out of it? I really feel angry that you talked about my feelings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. And, and so, Jurgen, I have worked on that for years with, our, with the church I formerly served. And I don't know. You know, I think I've told you that if I were to define the major distinction between my growing up in Joe Bailey's home and Mary Lee growing up in Ken Taylor's home, both well-known Christian leaders, you couldn't argue in Ken Taylor's home. And you live to argue in Joe Bailey's home. I mean, you know, my mother talks about when Elizabeth Elliot used to come to visit us because, you know, all of the Howard family were friends when we were in Philly. They all knew each other. And, and you know, of course, the Howard family believed in argument, and so did the Baileys. And so every time Elizabeth Elliot would come to visit us, my father and Elizabeth, or as we called her, Betty, Okay, they would go hammer and tongs against each other. And it was so interesting. You learn so much by hearing your parents argue with people. And you learn that this doesn't mean that you're not angry or that you have no value mm -hmm. or that you're stupid or that they don't respect you, or anything. If anything, I would say my father reserved his arguments for the people he really respected. Hmm. And so i that's a big 10-4 to what you just said. If your children leave your home feeling like if somebody disagrees with them, either they've committed a faux pas, or they've harmed the ecology of the universe... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have failed your children. You've failed them. Yeah. What do you say to them? Give a thumbnail sketch of what you say to your children about climate change. What I would say to them is we have a lot of good scientists working on it. The issue is very long-term. So don't fall into the trap of making it a religion. Learn to argue about it. Now, that's hard work, but sorry. Playing football is also hard work. Listen, Christian parents, one of the ways to teach your children to argue is to learn to make your opponent's arguments better than your opponents can make them. And one of the things I want to see Christian parents do before their kids leave home for work or for marriage or for the uni is that you are able to point out the weaknesses in climate change uh, nunchucks, <laughs> you know, uh, climate change, uh, what would you call them, uh, 1984 Apple commercial lockstep marchers is that you say now they may be right here or they could make they could improve always show your children that the essence of good arguments is improving your opponent's arguments if you lampoon them mock them show them that it's a political allegiance and that they must not ever in any way say anything in favor of climate change, I, I warn you that you will lose many of your children.
because they will see that you're insecure, you're fearful, and that you you live in a ghetto and that you're not capable of talking outside of the ghetto. So be very careful about that. You want to have a large heart that includes loving people who are religious about their science or religious about climate change. You don't want your children to grow up seeing you froth at the mouth at anybody that disagrees with what they perceive to be political issues. Because then what they see is that you're a politician, but you're not a Christian and you don't love. 